God, we thank you for your sustaining power of just life and breath and gravity and sunlight. Thank you for the provision that you give us in ways that we don't even realize. But God, we're gathered this morning to celebrate the greatest provision that you've given, and that's Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray as we exalt Christ that you would exalt yourself and that you would draw men and women to you for salvation and draw the believers in this room to a deeper faith and a deeper trust in you. I thank you for the book of James. I thank you how it has ministered to my own heart in these first couple of weeks. And so, God, I ask now that you would speak. God, I pray that you would also work in those who will be listening and glorify yourself this morning. It's in Christ's name. Amen. All right, you can have a seat. James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. James 1, 5 through 8. If you're new with us this morning, we... Um, well, you're just in time. You've only missed two sermons in the, in the book of James. We, we started the book of James um, a couple of weeks ago. We had an intro, and then we had the first couple of verses, and then now we are in verses 5 through 8. And so I want to give you just a little bit of an, uh, a, a recap or an overlap because the book of James is... It's well-loved. It's actually one of the most quoted books in the New Testament. Um, but what you also find about the book of James is there is a wide range of opinion on, on this book. And so one of the criticisms, if you will, it's probably a healthy one. It's a good way to critique Scripture. But uh, that a lot of people have is that the book of James is, is similar to the Old Testament book Proverbs, where he just sort of throws these one-liners and these thoughts out there, and he doesn't really connect them. Well, if you were here last week, and you know, we talked about suffering and steadfastness and perseverance... And then this week we'll talk about wisdom and asking God and a God who gives generously. It might seem at first glance that these things don't really connect or there's no real attachment. But I want to give you two ways that you can always connect Scripture, especially if it's in the same book of the Bible. And the first one is this, the author's intent. James wrote this, and we know that James um, is the half-brother, well, we're about 99% sure James is the half-brother of Jesus James, we do know that this James was the lead pastor or the pastor, the senior elder, to use contemporary terms, of the church at Jerusalem. He was never sent out. He stayed in Jerusalem, um, and he did ministry there. And so he was a pastor, and so he's writing from a pastor's heart. And if you're unfamiliar with what it means to write from a pastor's heart, he's simply just, um, he's a man that loves the people that God's called him to lead. I mean, the people that he's writing to, which is the second way that you connect um, and, and try to make sense of things that don't seem like they connect, is, is not only the author and his intent, but also who he's writing to. He's still writing to the same people that he wrote to last week. He's writing to Jewish Christians that it's about 40 to 50 years after Acts chapter 2, Pentecost, which is when Peter preaches the sermon and the Holy Spirit comes, just like Jesus promised in the New Testament church. What we do now um, was birthed in Acts chapter 2. And, and upon that wonderful day and that wonderful day as it was and the Holy Spirit came and thousands were saved, the same enemy that nailed Jesus to the cross is the same enemy that was present in, in, at the inception of the New Testament church. They began to attack the people who followed Christ and persecution happened. And so James is writing, as we saw in verse 1, to the 12 tribes in dispersion. He's writing to Jewish Christians who have been dispersed. They've been scattered. They've been misplaced. Church, they're suffering and they're suffering in ways that I don't know all of your stories, but, but I think I confidently say um, outside of just the normal life suffering, they're suffering for the name of Christ in ways that probably none of us, if maybe very few, have ever experienced. 
Um, They've been displaced from their homes, some of them from their families. They've been excommunicated from the temple. I mean, the temple life is what their life centered on as Jewish people. And now, as they've embraced Jesus as the fulfillment of Judaism and the fulfillment of the temple, um, they've been ostracized from their people and they've been cut off. And so they're displaced. And um, make no mistake, God is not caught off guard by this. God is not trying to figure out, well, what am I going to do now with since nobody likes the people that I've saved. That's not what he's doing. He uses the persecution, and it's in fact his sovereign plan to save. And so these people are being scattered out, and they're suffering. Not only with the fact that they have wayward children, and they have marital struggles, and they have health problems, and they're trying to figure out how how they're going to provide for their families. There's financial issues. There's all these normal issues, because they're normal people. We're normal people. James is a normal dude. Not only that suffering, but they have... This, this suffering that just kind of compounds all of that on top of that with this identification with Jesus and they're ostracized and they're scattered. And so last week, um, it's a strange request to count it joy in your suffering. You know, to somehow rejoice in these moments that it doesn't feel like it's possible. Um, and I can't re-preach that sermon, but just, just to give you the context. And he speaks to this rejoicing and this Um, looking not necessarily to what your problems are producing, but looking to the God of them and to know that God is working this, as James says, this steadfastness, or your translation may say perseverance, that he's not idle in these struggles and this suffering, that he is actively working. It's achieving, we saw in 2 Corinthians, an eternal purpose. So don't fix your eyes on what's transient and what's passing and what's material Fix your eyes on what's eternal, what Christ has declared over you through his cross and through his resurrection. That's ultimately where James in the New Testament wants to point us in the midst of suffering as this steadfastness is produced. And in verse 4, he says, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Now, I emphasize the last part of verse 4 because I think it's where the connection lies. In verse 4, James is encouraging these suffering Christians to look to a time when they will have no lack. I mean, Paul says it this way in Philippians, when you're finally saved, you know, right now Paul says we're being saved, we're being sanctified, but there's coming a day and a time when, when the believers will be in the presence of Jesus and we will be complete, we will be fully redeemed, we will be made whole. And James is saying, hey, there's coming a day that you will lack nothing. Now look at verse 5. If any of you what? Lacks. If you like to, it's, it's called hermeneutics. It's a fancy word. It's a silly word. It's kind of a funny word, but it's a study of words. So if, you, if you're having trouble connecting verses, this is a great way to do it. He speaks to a time that's coming that you're lacking nothing. But then in verse 5, here's the connection. He brings it back to the reality. And it's full of lack. I don't know if you say it that way or that's the right way to say it, but I can relate. Can you? There's just lack. Like I don't have what I need. I don't think the way I should think. My faith often isn't what it should be. I mean, there are doubts and there are fears. And so the connection's made that there is this, this, this lack. And he brings them back to the current situation and often shows, as we saw some last week as well, in the moments that were most pressed, that's when the ugliness comes out. You know, so faith, and I said this last week, but faith is... is um, it's not something that's there when you don't need it. So here, here's what I mean by that. If everything's great in your life and somebody says, hey, do you have faith? What do you normally say? Well, yeah, I got faith. 
It's when we're pressed and life happens and suffering happens and trials come and you know, whatever form it comes and, and, and we're pressed in that way and then we're frantically looking for something, someone or something to grab a hold of and to place our faith in. And so it's not faith if it's only there when you don't need it. I mean, that's where these Christians are. They're in a situation and in a context where they have to have genuine faith because no other faith is going to make it. Every other hope other than Jesus is going to crumble. And so from a pastor's heart, he's writing, pointing them. And I hope you can see the gospel in this this morning because I felt like the Lord really ministered to my own heart. And I'll share some of that at the end um, this week specifically. So he says, the current reality, verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, wisdom for the Jew was a a very common thing. It it, it was a high premium. I mean, the Jewish people wanted wisdom. I mean, James being a Jewish guy, he's leaning heavily here on the teachings of Solomon from Proverbs. And I did, like on Saturdays, a lot of times what I'll do with the sermons is I'll start cutting stuff because I'm like, it's too long. They're not going to make it. I mean... They're going to be hungry. Their roast is going to burn. It's not going to happen. And so we want to get out before the other churches, which is what we normally do, so y'all can get to the restaurant first, and you don't have to wait. And so I'm, just, I'm thinking of you, but I saw I start cutting stuff, and I wanted to show you all these places in Proverbs and in the Old Testament where it speaks to wisdom. Ecclesiastes, where Solomon's speaking about this wisdom. So for the Jewish mind, wisdom is a big deal. But as I said in the intro a couple weeks ago, He's not just influenced by Solomon's teaching. James is influenced by Jesus' teaching also. And so if you want, I want to challenge you with this because it's awesome. Read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, as we go through the book of James. And you will see, really, the primary teacher of the book of James is Jesus. James is leaning heavily on the teachings that he heard from Jesus. And so it's not just Solomon that talked to, spoke to wisdom, but it's also Jesus himself. James follows the same pattern here in, in Matthew 7, 7. You remember Jesus when he says, um, if, if an earthly father wants to give good gifts to his children, how much more will a heavenly father give good, uh, give good gifts to those who what? Ask. We're going to see that pattern today where James is going to go, hey, well, there's a generous, gracious father. You've got to ask him. Now, what about this wisdom? Because I think... Without defining this wisdom, then we walk out of here with our own definition of wisdom. And, and I don't know about you, but when, I mean, if I did a survey, if I did a survey and said, all right, define wisdom. And, and I'm not, I don't, I don't want to assume anything about you because um, I know a lot of you, and probably all of you are way smarter than I am. But when I think about wisdom, my, my first response and answer is not some Sunday school answer. I mean, when I think about what does it mean to gain wisdom, like if he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, okay, I'm like, all right, I'm in that category, right? We'd all raise our hands, say, all right, that's me. I lack wisdom, especially in this context. These suffering families and Christians, they're going, okay, we, we know we lack some things. And, and, and James is assuming you all are lacking this wisdom. And this wisdom, guys, is a big deal. And I want to say this, and I want you to try to listen and not misunderstand. But this wisdom is necessary for salvation, So this wisdom is a big deal. Like he wouldn't command us to ask for this wisdom if it didn't have some sort of effect on this steadfastness that takes us to that day where we lack nothing. And so there's this lack as we're being sanctified and made into the image of Christ. And and the way that you get out of the seasons out in fear and where there's the most lack and, and, and where you're lacking is through gaining 
this wisdom. But if I ask you what is wisdom, you start thinking things like, well, it's knowing more. Right? I mean, like, 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 so the wise people are the ones who have the most degrees. And I'm not downplaying. If you got degrees, hallelujah, amen. I love them. Great. Proud of you. Keep working hard. But that's how we define wisdom. Where wisdom is the strongest. Or wisdom, you know, people who are wise are the ones who have the most money. Or people who are wise are ones who have um, made the best decisions and, and done that. And I'm not downplaying those things, but if that's our definition of wisdom, then we're going to look at this context and go, all right, he's writing to suffering Christians. And, and this is ultimately what James' message is to us and to these suffering Christians is if any of you lacks wisdom, then you need to get stronger, you need to get smarter, you need to make better decisions. And so for you legalists, you're going to take that, which is some view of James. Some people think this is just this legalistic you know, book where you just want to heap up burden and rules and rules and rules. And you're going to take that and go, all right, this is how I got to get out of this suffering and how I produce this faith is by going over here and doing all these things and getting better myself. Here's the problem with that. There's levels of suffering that you can't buy your way out of. It doesn't matter how rich you are. I mean, you might, your money might have gotten you through a lot. But I promise you, you'll come to a time where money can't buy it. Your strength might get you through so many different things. But I promise you, there's coming a time where you're not going to be strong enough. You might be the smartest person on the planet. And you might be the smartest person on your floor, in your home, in your class, whatever that is. And that's awesome. It's a gift from God. But can I just tell you, there's going to be problems and suffering that you cannot think your way out of. You're not even going to be able to think clearly. And so that's why defining this wisdom is so vitally important. Because if we define this wisdom as, all right, if you lack wisdom, if you lack strength, intelligence, power, these things then you're going to go to God asking for the very things that can't get you through. So what is wisdom? I hope I can articulate this, but I want to show you a couple of other New Testament scriptures that I think can define what this wisdom is. Look at Colossians chapter 2, and these will be on the screen. Colossians chapter 2, verses 2 through 3. I'm going to start in verse 1, and I think the scripture will start in verse 1. It will. This is Paul writing to Christians, okay? He says, for I want you to know, now you have to bear with me, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll point out the areas that um, I'm referring to, but I want you to see the whole section. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged. Now keep that in mind, again, because there's some issues the, uh, these Christians at Colossians are having as well. And so he's, this is again a pastor, a planting pastor that's wanting to encourage. This is from a pastor's heart, he's wanting to encourage him. The first thing he says I want them to be encouraged in their hearts by being knit together in love. I love that picture. Side note, it's this picture of the church and God knitting, taking all of these diverse parts, different gifts, and knitting them together. And the unity is the love that comes from Christ, that he's shown each one of us, and that as Jesus commanded his disciples, that we are to show one another. And so he wants them to be encouraged in love. But, but, but watch this. To reach all the riches of full assurance. Assurance is another big word there. It's this confidence, this faith, this belief. Full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. Now, if you underline or highlight, get this next phrase. Which is Christ? So the confidence of understanding and knowledge of God is Christ. 
Say it another way. If you want to know God, look to Jesus. Colossians 2 verse 9. Just, For in him the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. The fullness of God is Jesus. And so let me back up. Which is in Christ, verse 3, in whom are hidden, here's our word, all the treasures of what? Wisdom and knowledge. Since Christ is God manifest, all wisdom comes from God. And the wisdom that we can see and embrace and know that comes from God I'm going to say it in a unique way, is Jesus. It is Jesus. It's not just found in Jesus. It's not just loving the teachings of Jesus. The gospel is not about you just following Jesus' teachings. It is that. There is obedience. The gospel is about uniting you to Jesus. In the gospel, we get Jesus. And when you get Jesus, you love him and you know the mercy and the grace that he's shown you. And then, of course, you follow him. And so there's a clue. The clue there is that this wisdom and this knowledge of in the mysterious sufferings of life is found in Christ. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 27. You guys are going to pick up in 26. You guys are going to pick up in 27 on the screen. But I love 26 too much to leave it out. Again, Paul writing to Christians. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. What he's addressing is the similar thing to what I just mentioned earlier. Our definition of wisdom. Many people think wisdom comes from all these worldly things. But then there's this biblical wisdom that we're trying to define here that doesn't come from the world. And so that's the contrast here, okay? So... Uh, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. And what he's insinuating there, you weren't of those three things, but God is using you. And so don't sit in a seat. Please don't sit in a seat going, I don't have a seminary degree. I don't have all this understanding. I'm not that powerful. I'm not from this family. I'm not strong enough. I'm not smart enough. What you see and what Paul is encouraging these believers in is that's exactly the kind of people God loves to use because nobody's pointing at you. Everybody's pointing at him. And they're going, well, how, how, is, how is God using you? What seminary did you go to? What did you do? I mean, how long have you been doing scripture? It's not, it's not about, it's about what God is graciously doing through individuals who according to the world, are weak. Now here's 27 where we pick up. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that, here's why he did that, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. All right, here it is. And because of God, you're in Christ Jesus. Watch this. Who became, didn't just give, like some, some you know, abstract, like he's just giving you something to take and walk away from him with. But watch this. Who became to us what? Wisdom from God. Righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. He is made unto us 
he has brought unto us wisdom. What is the wisdom? The wisdom is Jesus. And so now back to James, if, if James is defining wisdom with the way the world defines wisdom or the way the Greeks do in Corinth define wisdom, um, um, wisdom, it's about human strength, human intellect, human power, human, 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 beat the human chest. Godly wisdom is not that. Godly wisdom points you somewhere else. Godly wisdom doesn't say focus on the wisdom. Godly wisdom says focus on Jesus. He is the wisdom. And so now if you go back to James chapter 1 and you read that and you go, all right, so if, if it's not just this heaping these, uh, you know, I need to do better thoughts on me, let's read it this way. If any of you lacks trust, faith, hope, love in Jesus, ask God. It's not a plea for you to do better. Even though we'll see that. Obedience is a real thing. And don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. But I don't want you to be in the midst of your suffering and your trial and think the Bible's telling you to get stronger. That there's some way that you're supposed to be able to figure your... You know, I'm, I, God, I'm asking you to make me stronger. God, I'm asking you to make me smarter. God, I'm asking you to take this from me. And see, that's the problem. Is whenever we, If we think godly wisdom is about us being stronger or us overcoming, then we're asking God... For things that we don't even really need. When the main thing we need is Jesus. That's who we need more of. We need more Jesus. And so if, you're, if, if your suffering is, is a physical trial. And, and a, some sort of illness. God can heal that. And, he, and sometimes he will heal that. But can you he, please hear me and hear this with compassion. The greatest need you have is not health. If you need money right now. And you like that's a real thing. God can and will provide that in, in some really cool ways. But the greatest need you have is not money. It's not wealth. It's Jesus. And so if it takes a season of lacking wealth and health and prosperity, which this is not a popular gospel, if it means lacking those things to get more of Jesus, bring it on. It's not going to be easy. It's going to hurt. It's going to be real pain. It's going to be real tears. It's going to be real blood. But if we get more Christ, then it's worth it. And so I think this wisdom that we lack in the context is a lack of trusting and having faith in and believing on Jesus. And of course you would go to God. I mean, who else are you going to ask for this kind of wisdom? I mean, who else are you going to ask for Jesus? I mean, he is God. He, God and his sovereign plan chose to become incarnate and put on flesh and bones and to walk on this planet and live the life that we were not able to live. It's his obedience that we're banking on. It's his good works. It's his good deeds that we're banking on. It's his teachings that we're obeying and that we're following. It's his death that was our death. It's his resurrection that is our resurrection. And so God has graciously made himself known and given us this infinite resource. And the infinite resource of wisdom, sanctification, and redemption, as Paul said, is Jesus. Look to Christ. Look to Jesus. Don't go. I mean, y'all, I confess to you, when, it, when things happen, when things, I don't look to Jesus first. 
So what does he say? I mean, that's why I love it. It's so simple. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, it's so simple. Let him ask who? God. You know why he has to say that? Because we don't ask God. I mean, if you're willing to kind of step out of the church environment and say, you know, I mean... It's the same for these, these Jewish Christians. Guys, the, their mindset is not, all right, this is all for the glory of God and we're rejoicing in, in this suffering. And, I mean, it's not this superficial, unrealistic mindset. It's this rejoicing in the midst of pain. And the rejoicing is there is this, this reality, this eternal reality that Jesus Christ has declared over our lives through his cross and his resurrection that cannot be stripped. And so that cannot be taken. And in that I rejoice. And so, Lord, as I have trouble with my faith and belief and, and, and understanding, would you please give me more of Jesus? Would you please help me understand more of what he's done for me? Would you please help me know that his approval, his approval is what matters? Would you please help me to understand that and to believe that? Would you help my unbelief not just to get through some trial, but to get more of you? So he says, ask, ask God. Not, not as the last resort. I mean, not as the final straw. Like, oh, I guess I'll go to God now. No, he wants us to go to God. You go to him. And if you believe that he has this resource that he as we'll see in a second, generously pours out, then you will, which I think is probably the most beautiful aspect to this. Not only that he says, ask God, but look at that next phrase. It's not just God. He says, a God who gives generously to all without reproach. He doesn't lay out conditions. He gives freely he holds nothing back. He doesn't give reluctantly. I mean, you realize God's not going, I just gave you that. I mean, look what you did, Bob. Look what you did with what I just gave you. I mean, what's going to make you think I'm going to... That's not what he's... This is a generous, merciful, benevolent God who there's not conditions. Like, it's not... You ask. Ask. You go to him and you say, God, I need you. I need more of you. And he doesn't withhold. I mean, that's the promise. I mean, that's what Jesus is saying on the Sermon on the Mount, even though it's a little bit different setting. It's, it's, the, it's the teaching of Scripture. It's what it means to be a believer, that we recognize that we have this desperate need, and it's Christ. And so, I love the picture of these paints of this God who's not playing games with your unworthiness. Oh, you're not worthy. That's not what he's doing. I mean, we have a God who wants to give. And he has infinite resources. But you ask. You have to ask. I mean, are there things that God does for us and gives us without asking? Certainly. But in this situation... Whenever we are asking and we are looking and we are frantically searching for answers, James says, ask God. Because he's, not just does he have the answers, but he's graciously willing to give you the wisdom that you need. 
And so, all right, let's move on. So he says, to all without reproach, and it will be given to him, verse 6, but let him ask in faith. And so he brings this element back in with this next phrase. It's not just the faith, but there's this contrast with no doubting. For the one who doubts, he's like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Y'all, we understand what that means, right? Like, that's an analogy that we get. When you doubt, when there's more doubt than faith, you are like a boat with no rudder, with no sail, with no motor that's run out of gas. And if you've ever been in that situation, you know how helpless that feels. It is terrible. You're just at the mercy of the waves. You're at the mercy of the storm and you're just blown back and forth. And then if you follow again the parallels of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about this hope that, that, that is the gospel that's built on a solid rock foundation. And then there's this other foundation that's not built on the gospel. It's built on the ways of the world. And it's what? Sinking sand. And that's ultimately what James is saying. There's this faith and that's the solid foundation. And then there's this sinking sand of doubt, and he even explains it more. Not only are you tossed around by the sea, but he says, For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. That's, there's no way to sugarcoat that. If we're not asking God, and our lives are consumed with doubt, we should not expect the Lord to give us this wisdom. I'm not even sure we want it. If we're not asking God, to be honest with you. Like, if we're not asking God for the wisdom that he gives, which is a deeper hope and faith in Jesus himself, then I'm not even sure of the God that we worship or the gospel that we've believed. Because if the gospel that you believed is about your best life now, this is not making sense. This, this isn't going to fly. Like, I'm just to be honest with you. Like, you're offended But there's a gospel, a true gospel that transcends every ounce of suffering that we could ever experience. There's a true gospel that translates into every single context, not just the upper middle class context. And so, not only are you tossed around by the wind, but also in verse 8, listen to what he says. For this person that is consumed with doubt, he is double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. This word doesn't just mean two-minded It means to sold. Trusting, not trusting. Do I trust the world or do I trust God? Am I a friend of God or am I a friend of the world? And actually in chapter 4 verse 4, James is going to say, friendship with the world is enmity with God. Parallel with the Sermon on the Mount. Remember Jesus himself, what did he say? You can't serve two masters. You love God. Or you love money. John Bunyan in Pilgrim's Progress, you know what he called this guy? Mr. Facing Both Ways. His face is looking this way, his face is looking this way. This, with his right eye, he's looking to God. With his left eye, he's looking to the world. That person is unstable. And I'm not saying this person is an unbeliever. Because in fact, in my experience, what I've seen just, just in, in experience is a lot of times people who are not believers are, seem much more stable because they are single focused. And it's not Jesus. He's not even in the picture. But for those of us that can relate to this Mr. Facing Both Ways, which I can, it's, I know that I'm Christ, but I'm constantly trying to look two different ways, two different hopes to God and to the world. And what James is saying, hey, that's not even possible. 
And that is, in fact, I believe the most miserable person on the planet. A Christian who is not asking God. But a Christian who is frantically looking and seeking everywhere and going to everyone but to God. But this person who is double-minded, they're just unstable, they're unsettled, they're confused, there's more chaos than there is anything else. And so James encourages them bluntly and challenges them that, hey, when you think this way, don't expect there to be stability. And guys, when you're in suffering, it doesn't feel like there's any stability. And it's because there's not unless you look to Christ. Please hear me when I say this, that there will be moments in your life when this is going to be all you have to cling to. The promises of God are going to be all you have. The great thing is it's all you need. And so, I just want to say one last thing to this idea of doubting. Because I, I think, I, I want to confess some things to you. Some of you might be wigged out by that, but that's okay. Um, but I have done this. Oh yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I'm just a sinner. I mean, I, I I have a lot of doubt. I have a lot of fear, and that's true. Both all of that is true, and it's good to be transparent, and it's good to remember our depravity and all of those things. But but here's kind of the thinking that kind of can. If you're not careful, we would say like the like the father in Mark chapter nine, Lord, help my unbelief. We forget that he says, help my unbelief. He doesn't say, coddle my unbelief. He doesn't say, preserve my unbelief. He doesn't say, celebrate my unbelief. He doesn't say, keep me in my unbelief. The unbelief is something to come out of. And so be careful that we don't say, oh yeah, I just, I just, I'm just a worrywart. I mean, I'm just a worrywart. Some of y'all say that. I mean, you got your thing, that's my thing. I'm just a worrier. I just doubt. I just have fear. Okay, that's great. That's sin. But here's the deal. You don't stay there. The norm of Scripture, the norm of the Old Testament and the New Testament is not that God's people walk around in fear and faithless. Fear and doubt and constant doubt, constant doubt, constant doubt is evidence of an immature believer and we're not supposed to keep those baby legs our whole life. It's not. They grow and they're strengthened. In fact, look at Romans chapter 4. Uh, Jeremy, if you could get Romans 4, 20 through 22. This is of Abraham. Watch this. No, um, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. You see that? What was his hope? It was a way of thinking. He was fully convinced. You could say he believed. He had faith that God was able to do what he had promised. And if you know the story of Abraham, geez Louise. I mean, he's not a perfect cat. He had seasons of doubt. He had times where he lied. He made some horrible decisions. But ultimately, at the end of the day, his faith is what showed because he believed God. He didn't trust his circumstance. He didn't trust his suffering. He, he believed God. I mean, Hebrews tells us he was looking to a city whose builder and architect was God. That's why he was willing to live transiently here. He lived in tents made by man because he was looking to something greater. He was looking to God. 
He took the promised son up Mount Moriah to kill him. And the same God that promised to bless him through this son is the same God that encouraged him to walk up the hill with his son. He marched up there and strapped him down. And so, don't waller in your unbelief. So just like the father in Mark 9, help my unbelief. Say it another way. Crush it. God, diminish my unbelief. Overcome my unbelief. And that wisdom, when you seek, and you ask God to help, to help you move more into Christ's likeness and, and to ask for more of Himself through Jesus, that's the wisdom that gets you through. And that's the hope that James is offering. And that's the hope that the gospel offers. And so if the band would come back. And so when doubt comes, um, and the enemy is whispering, the Bible isn't true, those people don't really love you, There's no way that God loves you. Christ's blood isn't enough. Where do you go? Where do you look? Where do you turn? James' response is Jesus. There's nowhere else to go. There's nowhere else to look. And I think ultimately what this means for us, for those of you who are believers this morning, it means to remember what he's done. I mean, we're about to take communion in just a second. That's what communion's about. It's not just proclaiming the gospel. As Paul says, it's remembering. It's remembering the covenant that you have through the blood of Jesus that you cannot be stripped from. I mean, your, your performance can't remove you from the family of God because it wasn't your performance that got you into the family of God. And so the hope comes when you remember those things, you think on those things, you think on Christ, you ask for more of Him. And to trust Him and to believe Him more. I'm really, really reluctant at times to share personal stories just because I don't want you to leave here thinking about my personal story. I want you to leave here thinking about Jesus. I really do. And so that's why I don't share many stories. There's nothing wrong with pastors that do that. I'm not saying that. It's great, and I will occasionally, but I just don't like doing it much just because I just want to... i got a lot to tell you about Jesus, and that's the main thing. But this week, this week we had some, some things that happened that I felt like um, I didn't look to Christ in the midst of that trial and in that moment. And God graciously brought another person in to help me remember and think on. And joy came in that suffering. So just just a quick, and you're going to have a lot of questions, but I can't give you all the answers right now. And so I'm on my way to go pick up my oldest daughter from softball practice, and I get a phone call, and the coach is flipping out, and it's because she is unresponsive on the field. Um, last few weeks we've had some she's had some episodes not sure if it's heart related not sure if it's neurological we don't really know what's going on and so I pull up and when I pull up it feels like a movie right it feels like a movie I pull up and like the whole softball team's over here and they're just squalling they're freaking out and the way those adults and those first responders are looking at me I think she's dead like I'm like she's dead I mean there, there she is she's just dead and so I run up there and when I run up there and I get to her and I, and I see that she does have vitals and the paramedics are starting to get there and, and she's laying on her side, um, and she's still unconscious. She's still not responding. 
You don't, you don't really know what's going on. But then there's just her little friend, this little girl named Carolyn. And this little girl is, is, is leaning over my daughter and she's whispering this in her ear. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. And I'm like, I didn't tell her this, but I'm like, you're not telling Sarah that. I mean, that wasn't for Sarah. Sarah couldn't hear anything. It was for me. And it was in that moment where I still had no clue what was going to happen. But y'all, I can't explain it. I don't understand it. But just her speaking that reality and speaking that truth, there was rejoicing in my soul. I was not happy with the situation. I was still scared out of my mind. And so was Charlie. We didn't know what was going on. But there was this glimmer. There was this hope. There was, it wasn't just a little bitty candlelight. It felt like, like this a million lumen spotlight shining in my soul that there's a God who loves me and there's a God who is in control. And no matter what this situation brings, he's not out of control. He's not caught off guard. The enemy hasn't just pulled a fast one on him that he is working all things for his ultimate glory and our ultimate good. So sometimes I didn't, I mean, that prodded me to then ask God, I'm writing a sermon about this. You know what I mean? I'm like, well, how dumb can I be? I'm writing a sermon about this kind of suffering and I'm going through it going, all right, what do we need to do? What, you know, and not just in my heart going, Lord, I trust you. God, I trust you. And so this morning, as we take communion, uh, I, I know we take it for, you know, I mean, there's a lot of reasons we take it and I say it every week when we do, but, but, but this morning, um, for, you, for those of you who are believers, it's for believers. Um, if you're not a believer this morning, we want to pray with you and talk with you and point you to Christ and we want to see you surrender your life to Jesus. And so that's what we offer you this morning, unbeliever, not communion. It's better, it's Jesus. We offer you Christ and so come to Him. We can't save you, but we can continue to point you to the one who can. But believer this morning, can, can we just take communion and just celebrate and rejoice no matter what's going on in our life that what you are celebrating when those elements hit your mouth is you are celebrating a covenant that cannot be broken. That there's not one ounce of suffering, there's nothing that you can walk through in this life that can remove what Jesus has declared over you through his blood and through his resurrection. There's just not one. So just remember and celebrate and rejoice in Jesus. I think that's the wisdom. I think if we get more of Christ, we have the wisdom and the mindset to walk through whatever comes our way. But we're not going to do it without Jesus. So for those of you that have him, celebrate him this morning. And if you don't, then let us pray with you. Right, Joseph's going to lead us in song. I mean, as soon as I pray and say amen, the table will be open. I, mean, I know some of you are new. I, um, this morning we will not facilitate the Lord's Supper together. And so it's going to look like you taking the elements and coming back to your seat. You can kneel down up here. You can kneel down back there. But you just thanking God for what he's done for you. If you want to gather with your family and do it together, do that. But let's worship church and let's celebrate Christ. Let's pray. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit ministers. God, help us in this moment to understand more than we ever have that you are a God who gives without reproach. You don't give reluctantly. So God, just collectively, Lord, I pray that we ask. We ask for wisdom. We ask for you. We ask for help. We ask for you to diminish and destroy our unbelief. 
We ask for you to turn our hearts and minds to you. And so God, I pray that that happens. Your will be done. It's in Christ's name. Amen. You can stand. Death is a lie I want to hear